Thank you all for being here today. It's good to see you. It's been a good day here at Newland First thus far. We had our children's Christmas pageant, and some of you were here for that, and that's always a joy. It's the third one that I've been able to witness, and uh, Karen Nothout does a terrific job in coordinating all that with our music folks and with all these wonderful children, and uh, it's great to hear the old, old story told by the children in a very traditional, very wonderful way. So thank you for all who were a part of that, and if you missed it, uh, I hope you can make it um, next time around. It was really, really terrific. It is good to be together as we continue in this Advent season of the church here. Thank you to the Elliott family for leading us in our Advent devotional. And just thank you all for being here and for your prayers. If you are a guest today, we are especially glad you're here and encourage you to fill out one of the connection cards behind the pews and uh, hand it to us on the way out. We'd be delighted to uh, check in with you. Our scripture lesson for this morning, I'm going to read two passages from Luke, and then in just a few minutes, I want to read another passage from Mark's gospel. One of the primary characters of the Advent season is traditionally is John the Baptist. And so uh, that's part of our focus today as we talk about testifying to unfettered love. I will testify to love is our Advent theme this year, and we will continue in that direction. Now, if you would please stand as you are able for the reading of the Holy Gospel, beginning with Luke chapter 1 and verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And then from Luke chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Aturiae and Trachonitis, and Lysanias ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. The second 
Sunday of Advent, and lo, the days are hastening on by prophets long foretold. Christmas is coming, and the goose is getting fat. And if the goose can hang on till January the 1st, all the health clubs will have a really neat <laughs> New Year's resolution. Special, because it's not only the goose that's getting fat, it's some of us like me who are putting on some pounds as well. Now, at what point do we stop saying, I want to wonder if Christmas Day will ever get here until we start saying, oh, no, is it Christmas again already? In preparation for Christmas, the church has long observed this holy season of Advent, a time to remember the first coming of Christ, a time to celebrate the way he comes into our hearts and our church and our world every day, and a time to anticipate the return of Christ in glory at the end of the age. This year we've chosen as our Advent theme, Testify to Love, and our verse, our theme verse that will carry us through these four weeks of Advent is from 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. Whoever does not love does not love God, does not know God. For God is love. Last week, on the first Sunday of Advent, we testified to righteous love. We talked about righteousness and how that has to do with the right relationship between us and God and between us and one another and all the folk in this world. Righteous love goes beyond warm and fuzzy. It has to do with words and acts and deeds, kindness and service intended to encourage and to heal, and to lift up. Could any of us stand on our soapbox today and testify to having participated in acts of righteous love over this past week? And truth is, we don't need a soapbox. Wherever we are, it's appropriate to testify to righteous love. And if that's happened, if we've had a chance to share that righteous love with somebody we know or somebody we don't know, how is that experience changing us? How is that experience transforming us? And I know when we use this image, this metaphor of a soapbox, some folks say, well, what in the world are they talking about? But some of us remember a day when on the street corners in some small towns and some large cities, there would be a street evangelist, someone standing up on their soapbox or whatever they could find and preaching the good news or the scary news sometimes. But they were on the street corner and people would would gather around to listen and to, to hear what they had to say. And occasionally you still see that, but you don't see too many folks stopping to, uh, to listen anymore. The gospel lesson is filled for today with testimony to God's love. And that's week two. We're testifying to unfettered love. And I know that's an unusual word. Probably some of us in here have not used that word more than four or five times in the past week. But unfettered, a word that means unbound or unshackled or unchained or set free. There are all kinds of meanings. The old word is unfettered. The gospel lessons for the Sunday are filled with testimony to God's love that is shared with joy that we might be unfettered and unchained and free to live from fear, free from fear. The Holy One guides our feet and makes the way bright 
with knowledge and insight. And we've talked about that in the canticle and we sang about that in the hymn about light this morning. One of our major themes throughout the Advent season, the days grow shorter, the nights grow longer. And we need to be reminded of the light of God that always shines. The main character in our text for today is the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah. John, sometimes called a wild one, who would testify boldly to the love of God, testify about the one who was coming, testify about unfettered or unchained love. Recall from last week, if you will, that testify means to stand up, to declare by word and deed what we believe and who we are. And we don't necessarily have to climb up on a soapbox to do that. There are all kinds of venues and places and situations where we can testify to the love of God. There have always been witnesses who have testified boldly in all kinds of places, testified fearlessly, but courageously, or not fearlessly. What I want to say is that courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is being able to say and do the right thing even when we are afraid. Is fear hampering our testimonies? Does it get in the way of our sharing the love, the mercy, the grace of our incredible, awesome God? Sometimes, I know it does, and we may not want to go all the way in the direction of John the Baptist where people start calling us the wild ones or saying we have a wild streak and we'll just jump up on any soapbox and start preaching. That's not exactly what we're talking about. But what is it that motivates us to testify to unfettered, unchained love, to show how the love of God has brought freedom into our lives? Okay, well, let's talk a little bit more about this John the Baptist character. One of those characters that we lift up during Advent on a pretty regular basis, but most of the year, we don't have a lot to say about John. This John the Baptist character, or more accurately, John the Baptizer. Uh, people make jokes and things about John being a Baptist, but I can't imagine... John showing up at First Baptist or First United Methodist on a Sunday morning carrying on like he did and wearing that leather girdle. I'm not sure that that would fit in. And think about the scene he would cause on Wednesday night and the Wednesday night supper in the buffet line, wondering where the locust and the wild honey were. There was something about John that made folks uncomfortable, even in his day and time, even if we move that distance from then until now. So there's a John the Baptizer story in Mark's gospel. Mark is the shortest of the gospels, but he has, I think, the most comprehensive story of what happened with John and how his life came to an end. And I want to share that with you. It's a gospel lesson, but just remain seated. And if you want to follow along, it's in Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 14. Maybe more about John the Baptist than you want it to know, but I hope this will be helpful in some way to you. John six fourteen and following. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead. And for this reason, these powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised 
For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it. And he solemnly swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? She replied, the head of John the baptizer. Immediately, she rushed back to the king and requested, I want, to give, I want you to give to me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oath and for the guest, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent a soldier, the guard, with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother when his disciples heard about it. They came and took his body and placed it in a tomb. The account of the death of John the Baptist was a flashback to a birthday party in the palace of Herod. It's got all the marks of a great story. There's an anecdotal style. It's colorful. There are dramatic details. There is an adulterous king and a scheming woman and a dancing girl and a violent death. It's a story that's given birth to many, many legends. The dancing girl, unnamed in scripture, is identified as Salome from other sources. The performance is later expanded into a dance of seven veils and the theme repeated with endless, endless variations, including an opera by Richard Strauss and a Western film tied loosely to a town, Salome, in Arizona, titled Salome, where she danced. So what is a sordid story like this? doing in a nice gospel like Mark. Its central figure, John the Baptist, is overshadowed somewhat by all of these flamboyant characters surrounding his death. <clears throat> and even his death doesn't seem to be directly related at this point to the unfolding story of Jesus. If you read about it in some of the other gospels, the connection is a little more obvious. And then there's the description of a relationship between the bearer of God's message and the powers that be, the political powers. Faithful Christian witnesses should not be surprised when there's opposition, when there's pushback from religious and political power structures. The gospel never promises us a rose garden. And Mark's gospel certainly never offers any hope for easy discipleship. Herod's court, like the Sanhedrin and Pilate's court, is viewed realistically. The ruler's good intentions, if he really had any, are overruled by his ambition. Envy and fear and compromise, God's faithful witness, John, becomes a victim. So one way of viewing this passage is in terms of success versus significance. Success as the world measures it is seen in the court of Herod. It's, it's all there. The chief of state and his advisors, the military commanders, the leading 
influencers of the country. They're all there. And they're the ones who can afford leisure and, and pleasure. They get what they want when they want it. They're used to living that way. John the Baptist alone in his cell. Doomed. Helpless to save his own life appears in shocking contrast to the glitter and glamour of the successful people of his time. And we're fascinated. Folks have always been fascinated by wealth and power and intrigue of Herod's court and other courts of other rulers. Yet the significance of the passage lies in that lonely, poor prophet in that dark prison cell. How about the case of King Herod? It was Herod himself who was responsible for the imprisonment, the arrest of John the Baptist. Herod was ill with John because John had long since quit preaching and gone to meddling. And he told Herod in a very bold and forthright manner, Herod, who had married his brother Philip's wife, John said, it ain't right. You shouldn't be doing stuff like that. And Herodias, the the daughter, the dancer, she was no candidate to be president of the John the Baptist fan club. She had grown weary of John also. Uh, This is not the dancer. This is the mother of the dancer, pardon me. She held a grudge against John. She looked for an opportunity to do him in. But she was prevented from doing that because there was something different about John. There was something holy. There was something about John that sort of intrigued Herod. And Herod felt compelled for whatever reason to protect this guy. He was perplexed when he heard John. Yet he liked to listen to him is what Mark's gospel says. Why? Was there something lyrical In the voice of this one who was called a prophet crying in the wilderness? Was there something lyrical about the one who had begun his prophetic career out away from everyone? Was there something attractive about the truth? Even if the truth was sometimes perceived to be offensive and difficult to hear. It reminded me a little bit thinking about this how Herod liked to hear John but he was troubled by John about a sophisticated, urban, academically inclined Episcopal priest who was asked to fill in one Sunday evening at a local Baptist church. The Baptist church was between pastors, so they had asked this guy if he'd come over and preach, and he did. And after the service, one of the older women in the congregation said to the priest, Oh, Reverend, we don't believe a thing that you said, but we just love the way you said it. And so maybe that's what's going on with John and Herod. Maybe a little bit. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet, gave a party. Everybody in Galilee who was anybody was there. And at the party progressed, the daughter of Herodias came in and danced. And Herod and his guests were charmed. Or something of the sort. And Herod made a really stupid promise to Herodias' daughter. Ask me for whatever you wish. And I'll give you anything up to half the kingdom. Oh my So Herodias' daughter saw the advice of her guilt-laden and mean-spirited mother. What should I ask for? Without batting an eye, without batting a long false eyelash, she said the head of John the baptizer. And the dancing girl daughter did as she was told. 
took that word to Herod, and Herod was deeply grieved. Probably grieved more over his own stupidity than that the blood would soon be spilled of John. Yet out of regard for the promise he had made and the presence of his guest, Herod would not refuse her request. Somewhere deep in the prison, Machaerus, east of the Dead Sea, the axe fell in John's head, was presented to Herodias on a platter. And the gruesome thought of such a thing, that will spoil most any birthday bash, wouldn't it? Just think about it for a moment. And then for some reason, my thoughts all went here. Is it ever okay to, to break a promise? Don't you wish that the mighty Herod had had the intestinal fortitude to break the foolish pro- <clears throat> promise Excuse me, promise he had made to a dancing girl? But even when that stark realization fell upon him, like a ton of bricks, he knew that he had an acute case of foot-in-the-mouth disease and there was nothing much he could do. He was too full of stubborn pride to back down. It would have been embarrassing to break the promise. All of his friends heard him make it. It would have been humiliating to break the promise. How would his underling court officials have felt if he had changed his mind when they heard him? You're the king. It would have been intimately confessional to break the promise. Herod would have been acknowledging that underneath his kingly facade, there was some kind of spiritual nature. There was some kind of humanity and something real there. A conscious, maybe, a spiritual nature. John had broken through and touched him deep in his soul. And he was too embarrassed to admit that. Is it possible that showing out to impress others can be behind the scenes of some foolish promises? Isn't it apparent that Herod was showing out when he made this promise? If there had not been an audience, would he have made the promise? Probably not. Would he have retracted it when the request was made for John's head? Probably so, I think. If there had not been all these other folks around, is it possible that the hope of some sort of victory is wrapped up in the making of foolish promises? Let me paraphrase that question. Have there ever been political leaders who make promises they know they can't keep just so they can be elected? Is it ever okay to break a promise, even a promise made to God? This story came to mind, the book of Judges, chapter 11. It's not one of those stories we read a lot. It's not a children's Sunday school story exactly. Neither is this John the Baptist stuff. But there's described a strong Hebrew warrior by the name of Jephthah the Gileadite. Jephthah's mother was a prostitute and consequently he was cut off and rejected by his brothers. Cut off from his father's inheritance, he left home, surrounded himself with a gang of outlaws and made his living raiding others. Eventually his leadership skills were recognized. That's odd, isn't it? Say the... (laughs) I mean, that's like Jesse James's leadership skills being recognized. And he was made a military leader and later a political leader. Jephthah finally consented, and he was successful as a warrior for Israel. And one of Israel's enemies at the time were the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a foolish promise to the Lord God. If you will give the Ammonites over into my hand, then whoever comes out of the door when I return home, Whoever 
comes out of the door of my house first, I will offer that person to you as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering. So Jephthah was enabled to whoop the Ammonites. And when he came home to Mizpah, the first person to come out of his door, you remember the story, his daughter, his only child. Oh, my daughter, well, you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my promise. And I've often wondered why he didn't fall on his knees and ask God's forgiveness for having made such a foolish promise. Aren't there scriptural examples? God and the children of Israel in the Exodus time of God repenting, changing God's mind and showing God's gracious favor towards God's people. Might God have turned a sympathetic ear toward Jephthah? Might he have relieved him from this awful obligation? I wonder, what if Jephthah had known God as we know God through the love and mercy and grace of Jesus the Christ? Ever okay to break a promise, especially if in breaking the promise, the ultimate law of love is upheld. Is it ever okay? John the baptizer was fettered, chained in a dark, dirty prison, and his courage cost him his life. But the powerful love to which he testified could not be fettered, could not be shackled, could not be bound, could not be chained up, not then and not now. 1 Peter 3, 14, 15, but even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated. 1 Timothy 1, 7, for God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, of fear, but rather a spirit of power and a spirit of love. Unfettered love. All the shackles are off. And we are free to testify. Our feet are free to dance. Amen.